my view back in the day was always that marketing was sort of the big M and all of these parts were levers of the big M marketing. Today, I actually think experience is the big E and marketing is a component of it because really our job, this is again, according to me, our job is to drive the customer experience and the employee experience because without an ex- a successful employee experience, there's almost no chance you're going to have a great customer experience. And so the experience and the understanding, the customer journey, the employee journey, all the way, again, regardless of the kind of customer, without understanding that, it is going to be very hard for you to be successful with digital, with media, with advertising, with your PR, with any of it. And so the marketing component that I then took on, I started with the, I mean, look, we yes, we were out there doing marketing, but I started with using the experience mapping that we'd done to then inform the choices and the plans that we were making from a marketing perspective. This is episode 31 of Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed. My guest today is Julie Rame. She's the Chief Experience and Marketing Officer for Party City which is both a manufacturer and retailer of party supplies. The company is in the second year of a turnaround strategy that started with new leadership and a culture shift toward the consumer experience. We talk about this and how the pandemic proved that no matter what, the need to celebrate our kids and big life events never goes away. We just have to adapt. Julie Rame, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So first, uh, where does this podcast find you? In my uh, home, actually, I'm kind of up. I've got a like a little chair and a little side table in my bedroom here because I've got my mother's visiting, my husband, the dog. And so, you know, to do these podcasts, well, you kind of at home, you kind of got to find a corner. So that's where I am with my corner and my blanket and my warm cup of coffee because it is a cold day here in Westport, Connecticut. Ah, right. Westport, Connecticut. Nice. Nice place to live if you have to be in the city quite a bit, huh? It is. It's, you know, it's the, there was some sort of crazy movie about, they were talked about, oh yeah, Connecticut. It's so great. It's the best of both worlds. You know, you're close enough to the city where you can enjoy all the benefits, but far enough away where you're, <laughs> but it's really super true. And, you know, I've lived in, this is not my fun fact, but I have lived in 12 states and like twice as many cities. And this is, really nice because we're less than a mile from the ocean or at least Long Island Sound, part of the ocean. And then, you know, the train, you know, in normal situations is less than, it's about an hour to the city and back. And so it's super, you do really get the best. And it's got this boutique charming, New Englandy feel up here. So yeah. I do, I love it up here, but we are- Have you ever made the daily commute to the city and any of your previous roles? I have. We moved here to Connecticut when I took the job with SAP in 2012. And so I used to take the train into the city and every day and have meetings there. Yep. Yeah. I know a lot of people that like from Darianne <laughs> and, you know, that part of the world that that's kind of like your daily thing, which is, I mean, so much better than being in LA where you have to actually drive because you can get stuff done on the train, right? Like you can actually be productive. That's true. And it's, you know, and now the jobs that I've had since even SAP is largely virtual. I mean, you were in quite a bit, but so much of it was virtual. So you could, you didn't actually have to physically be there every day. And then the jobs I've had since and, and then now Party City and Pandemic, we're all here all the time, but it's a better commuting situation for sure. Yeah. I don't think anybody, even when it's done, people that were doing the daily kind of Monday through Friday, I don't even think they'll do that anymore. Right. No. At least on, you know, I can speak for us and I can speak for, you know, several of my other companies that I'm familiar with. They similarly are, we're kind of able to test out the remote workforce situation, maybe before they had ever considered it being really an option because now we were all forced to. And so I think that it's an opportunity for people to have some sort of better, you know, there's balance is probably a better word, but have maybe a better lifestyle where they have more flexibility, but also it's a cost savings in many ways. I mean, it allows people to be more flexible and it allows us to be able to really rethink, 
you know, facility, like we're electing, a, we've got a couple of facilities whose leases are up and we're not going to renew because the remote workforce works for some of those people, you know? And so it's, you think even too about what it's going to mean, you know, now we can get off on a crazy tangent, but for like the airline industry, because will businesses come back to flying as frequently as they did? Will we all want to fly as frequently knowing now that we can be successful kind of in a Zoom situation? So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I do think there's certainly been a big sea change. Yeah, big changes ahead in terms of workforce and life. But as you alluded to, I do want to hear about, you know, a fun fact about Julie Rame that most might not know. I think I've talked about living in lots of places before, so I won't do that one. That's a lame one, I think. But I mean, it's kind of exciting, I guess, if you've always lived in the same place. But the fun fact that I have, I have several. I always think about these and I give my kids versions too. I'm like, you have this fun fact and people always ask for fun facts. You should use this one. So there are actually probably two that are truly fun. I'll start with the earliest one, which was when I was pregnant with my now 19-year-old. He's a freshman up at Emerson in Boston. And I was pregnant with him and I was working for Chrysler at the time. And I was running the Dodge brand, the marketing brand. We were relaunching the brand. We had just redesigned the sort of the look, the feel, the logo, the tagline. We went from Dodge Different to Grab Life by the Horns. And in doing that, we decided to partner with Aerosmith. So (laughs) this was the year Aerosmith had launched their Just Push Play album and were the Armageddon movie was out. And so the soundtrack to Armageddon was part of the Just Push Play album. Anyway, so they were pretty big and we had used them because what we were trying to do was shift the Dodge brand from being book smart to street smart. And yet you wanted somebody who kind of could parallel both and that, you know, they were old enough to appeal to the boomers and young enough or hip enough still to appeal to uh, at that time, the Gen Xers. And so anyway, that's where we had. So I spent a lot of time with the band, with Aerosmith, and got to know them pretty well and fun group of guys. But as with all, <laughs> and probably I think all rock stars, at least of that ilk of the, you know, of that era, where, you know, I, I'm sure it's different than the rock stars of this era, maybe not horribly different, but probably so. You're kind of at their beck and call, or they expect you to be at their beck and call, put it this way. Now, this is before, I mean, certainly there were cell phones, but they were the sort of the bigger, clunkier ones. We weren't, you know, it wasn't the computer in your hand the way they are today. You know, you couldn't have those two ways to do text. They weren't an actual, you know, to do texting on your phone with those buttons was like. Yeah, you're dating us here. <laughs> right. I told totally, them like four letters her number and it was such a pain in the butt. So they called, phone calls were still the thing. So he would call all the time and, you know, couldn't get me or whatever. So I had to start carrying a special phone and I was in the doctor's office with my husband and I was like midway through my pregnancy and they were doing the test to, you know, they all the regular tests, but they was also the one where they, you could find out the sex of the baby if you wanted to. And so we had just found out that I was having a boy and I was in the room, the doctor had stepped out, but my phone rang. So my husband was in the, the hospital room and it was Steven Tyler. And Julie, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I'm in the doctor's office, Steven. Oh, you are? I was like, yeah, we were just finding out the sex of the boy. You did really? What is it? I was like, it's a boy. And he was all excited. I mean, he really did. He does love babies and he loves his, like, he's much more of a, I don't know if family man's the right word, but he loved kids. So he was very excited about it. So anyway, I always say one of my fun facts for my son, I'm like, you should say that the second person outside of your mom and dad know that you were a boy, (laughs) Steven Tyler. Sadly, most of his friends don't know who Steven Tyler is. Right, Uh, of course. And he tells me always that that's my story, not his story. I'm like, no, no, it's totally about you. So there's that one. And then the other one is also sort of musically related, I guess, in that in 2000. Oh, gosh, eight. I was asked to be a judge on a reality show. So Mark Burnett, the, you know, he did whatever the Survivor, The Apprentice. He did Apprentice, right? All those. So he was doing another reality show called Jingles. And this was about, basically, it was kind of a cross between actually Survivor and Apprentice, where you took kind of random people. They couldn't have any formal music training or background. You put them in groups. And then you had every episode was sponsored by a different brand. And in fact, I met some really great people that way. One of my 
long dear friends is Jeffrey Hazlett, who then was CMO of Kodak. And he was, we met because he came on and he was sponsoring an episode and they came on and kind of gave a brief kind of, if you will, to the participants. And then the participants had to go away and produce a jingle. And so the reality fit was like produce, you know, the pitch and then watching them try to put their jingle together. And then when they came back out, they had to actually perform the jingle and kind of act it out almost as if it was a commercial itself. And so the judges were myself and of course then Gene Simmons was from Kiss was a judge. <laughs> and Linda Kaplan Thaler was the third judge. She was she's a founder of a, an ad agency in New York. She had done a ton of jingles on her own. And so we, the three of us were judges and it was the most fun show. I think we spent like two, three months in LA filming it. So I kind of, I got to live in an apartment and then, you know, took some of the clothes, they gave it to me, I didn't steal it. But, you know, it was so much fun to do and they sold it to CBS that summer and it was coined, it was going to be used as a mid-season replacement. So basically when you normally launch the fall shows, some of the shows just don't do as well. And so they replaced them midway through the season and we were a mid-season replacement. <laughs> But sadly, they didn't have to replace any show. So it's somewhere in the archives of the CBS vaults is the Jingles reality show. But I was on a reality show as a judge, which would have been super fun to. I know they should have brought that out in COVID. I mean, they're not producing anything right now. Like everybody's looking for TV shows. They should sell it to Netflix and just, you know, let us all see it. It would have been fun to see, except for then it would have been like the Kodak because they were bringing back the Polaroid. And I don't know, it would have been funny to think about. <laughs> a little dated, yeah. Right in terms of the product, but it was a super fun show. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's see, those are some great fun facts. And really, I think the thread there is like, you know, if you're a marketing rock star, you get some pretty cool opportunities and you get to meet some cool people for sure. So, uh, and that's really big. Not only is he a rock star, truly, by the definition. He's also a great marketer. He took the cast and some of the staff to his house and his house. I don't know if he still has a house, but the house he has like one wing was dedicated to all the kiss paraphernalia. It was amazing. What he had done when he started it was he bought all the rights to all the kiss merchandise. So he owns all the licenses, all of it. So he's like a mastermind marketer. <laughs> I yeah, mean, you know, he, really I think he would be the first to tell you his musical skills are fine. They are by no means the strongest of his strong suits, though. I think he's a genius marketer, actually. For sure. Yeah. So let me set the stage for our conversation today on Party City. So it's March of 2020. The world is locked down due to COVID. And we're all talking about this new thing called social distancing. So you've been with Party City at this point for about four months. You're already in a turnaround situation and the business fundamentally relies on social gathering. How do you feel about the company's 2020 prospects at that moment? March of 2020, not March of this year. Okay. So yeah. yes, it's interesting because if you remember, it's hard to remember back a year, but COVID hit. Remember when it started? Nobody thought that this was going to be a year-long pandemic. I mean. We were, you know, the thinking was like, oh my God, people are sick, it's scary. But most of us thought by summertime of last year, we were going to be over the hump, right? We were going to be getting back to- At that to moment, we weren't leaving our homes. Like we were like sheltering in place in March, yeah. like April, right? Right, right? March was crazy, but like, it was like, but surely we're going to get this, like we're all going to stay home and by like summer, it's going to be, we'll be back to normal. And so as you were thinking about that, it was like, okay- this is rough because we've got an entirely new executive team. Literally, the CEO started in August of 19. Our chief merchant started in November of 19. I started in December. Our head of HR had started a few months before our CEO. We brought in a new CFO in February. During COVID, we had our new CIO come in. But so literally, we are an entirely new executive team with the transformation story and this turnaround plan. And so to your point, March hits. And we're, you know, optimism abounds when you're sort of a new group. You're like, well, that's okay. Like, this will give us just time. First of all, there's forgiveness across the business planet because everybody's sort of in a health. So there's, we get a little bit of leniency. So that's okay. We'll use this to sort of fortify our plans and we'll kind of move forward. And by the time this thing lets up in the summer, you know, we'll be great in time for Halloween for sure, which is our big season. Like for sure, 
people are going to be so ready to go out and party for Halloween because it'll have been six months or whatever that they have been pimped up, you know, right? So it was like, okay. So we just sort of dug in and, you know, we decided to try to, and again, it's, it could be just individual personalities. It could be because we were a new team and we were just leaning in so hard and just saw so much opportunity. We just decided to fast forward these plans. And I always say we chose to thrive instead of just survive this pandemic. And so we we leaned in and we started to set up BOPAC or buy online, pick up at curbside. That's our, everything has an acronym, right? Or SDD, same day delivery. And so we set those up in the midst of a COVID. I had called from my old auto days, people at Hertz and you guys probably aren't selling a lot or renting a lot of cars. And my guess is you have some extra capacity. Well, we need people to deliver balloons and party stuff. So we set that up eight days after I made the first phone call, we were delivering our first party to people you know, via the car. And so, you know, we just, that was sort of our mentality. We use it as an opportunity to experiment with things again, because there was enough, you know, I guess we're definitely a glasses half full, maybe mindset just because you could see so many opportunities. And again, that, that sort of air of like, you got to keep the business going, but people are going to potentially reward you more for doing something rather than to sit back and being conservative and do nothing, right? And just to try to ride it. And so that's kind of the mentality we took is we just believed in the AR customers' willingness to hang with us while we were trying new things and their willingness to let us try new things that they knew would be better, even if it wasn't executed to perfection from the start. So that's what we did. And we were exactly that, which was far from perfect. (laughs) We were really clunky, but it was the right thing to do. And we learned a ton and our customers were there for us to kind of help teach us and kind of cheer us on in many ways. I love that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it really does seem like it was driven by, you know, the optimism that was already there because you guys were already in a turnaround situation and probably already seeing some effects of strategies you were putting in place. You know, some the previous administration might have said, okay, like what stores are we going to close? You know, right? Like that would have been their response. Like we got to cut costs. We got to, you know, just renegotiate leases and, and just looked at it that way. But I think because you guys were a new team and you guys were just completely infused with optimism that like even a global pandemic wasn't going to slow down the turnaround vision that you'd put in place. So maybe you could talk to me a little bit about you know, kind of what had been done in that kind of period when you joined to actually start riding the ship even before we got to COVID. Absolutely. So one of the main reasons why I joined was because I loved Brad, who's our CEO, his vision of changing us from being just the provider of the party good to the provider of the whole party experience. And why that spoke to me is because, well, there were several reasons. One, most people don't realize that Party City is a vertically integrated company and in that we manufacture roughly 80% of what we sell in our stores. And that, you know, 50%-ish, 40 to 60% of what you might buy in the party aisle of other stores is likely made by us too through our companies. We have, you know, a few couple dozen companies that we own. We're the world's largest maker of the Mylar or foil balloons that you see, those bigger, you know, balloons, not the latex ones. And so grocery chains and things probably are selling you the balloons that we've manufactured, that kind of thing. So the opportunity was to take this integration, this vertical integration that certainly existed on paper and really unlock the potential and bring it forward. And what I mean by that is if you think about the way that the company was set up, it was really built on this sort of, you know, the old retail colloquialisms to stack it high and watch it fly. And I, you know, that certainly doesn't work anymore. And I'm not sure when it was really successful, but it was not certainly of the day. And because there's not really any other major retailer at our scale that is 100% dedicated to the entire party experience, I think we were able to get away with that longer than maybe other retailers would because retail is obviously a super competitive landscape. And the fun part of coming in from a strategic standpoint was to reimagine it that if in fact we have all of these assets, so you have the physical space, we have an online e-com, we have all the manufacturing of everything to make a party complete. 
if we now took a mindset of, instead of selling as many of an individual SKU as possible, instead of thinking through how does the customer journey work and how does their inspirations, how do they start thinking about, I'm going to have a party and what comes to their mind first and how do they start to plan and where in that journey does it become super difficult and the kind of joy gets sucked out because of all the the detail and the challenges and the multiple stops and the, you know, some things are perishable in the process, food and balloons and some things aren't. So how do you think through all of those things, getting it to my home? That was our challenge. And so what we started off was doing just that as a full customer journey mapping from end to end. And we started with the retail customer. We're now onto our B2B and our wholesale customer as well. But we started a little over a year ago with the retail customer to see what that journey map looks like. We did it on a very quantitative scale, kind of like the old fashioned leaky bucket analysis where you could see where people were kind of opting out of the process because it was just too difficult. And because we had made it our mantra to make, you know, in simple terms, to make joy easy. So this kind of making it easy to create these memorable moments, that was the guiding principle. And by doing that, you understand clearly that Having people come into a physical space where it's stacked high, aisles by kind of by skew is not how you think about putting your party together, right? You think about it in terms of kind of everything together. If I'm going to do a Spider-Man themed party or a, you know, a shower, you know, baby shower, I want to not only have the, the, you know, different favors there, but I want to know that the plates and accessories that would go with it to sort of bring it to life are super adjacent to it so that I don't have to think about this and walk around the whole store with this one, you know, sort of central, maybe thematic product that I want to sort of build around, that it really can all be put together for me in a very easy for me to visualize way. You take that then to the web, the web was sort of built the same way too, it was built in a very rigid sort of HTML based way without a lot of flexibility for multiple user journeys, not built for anything other than sort of a catalog experience. And again, that was the strategy when it was built, but it's not, it wasn't conducive to the strategy that we were trying to undertake. So in that journey mapping highlighted, <laughs> I always say, look, the things that it highlighted are long, long lists that we will not get to, you know, all of the whole list for probably a couple of years. It's a long list of things that we know we can do to make parties more accessible, easier to complete, more joyous, more over the top, like all kinds of things. There's no shortage of ideas. The quest is when you have all those ideas and you have this opportunity in front of you, how do you choose which things to do first? And how do you choose what to say no to? And that is honestly the hardest part of our transformation is how do you define what are those elements that we're going to lean into? And what are we going to be disciplined enough to say no to? That is the key because we all want to do well and we all see these problems and we all want to make it better for our customer and for our associate, but we can't do everything and do everything well. And so that's the rigor and the discipline. And so when we started, we knew that. And then the pandemic hit and that's when we said, okay, now what's most important? Well, we did actually have to watch our pennies because we did have to close stores like all retailers did for a period of time. So, you know, then it becomes, well, what is most important to our kind of building our success. And that's where we leaned into these services, which are a big portion of what our future of the party platform looks like. So we leaned into these services. So the curbside and the same day delivery. And then as we started to go, we started to really lean into how are we going to serve customers today, knowing that this pandemic isn't going to go away. And so we, you know, virtual parties were starting. And so we started to create a joy squad with influencers that were actual true influencers and party planners and they were, you know, we basically gave them product and said, how do you do this? How would you suggest people do virtual birthday parties? I was one of those who has a son who had a 2020 high school graduation. How do you do that when you can't do it in the traditional way? And they helped to create some beautiful ideas. And what we did is we took those and we worked with our merchandising team to package them so that it was a single click if you went to the website. And we, you know, we then had how to's like a full list of how to's with video how to's for summertime last summer. It was crazy because, you know, parents were having to work from home. It was a struggle, but now the kids weren't in school because school was out and there are no summer camps. And so they're supposed to be working from home. 
and having to manage the kids and there's no summer camp to actually even like even day camps, even to send them for a few, none of that exists. You couldn't do it. So we created these summer camp itineraries, which included all the activities, a shopping list to say, just click here and you can put it in your basket. Not everything on the itinerary actually required you to buy something from us. So we were really trying to be very thoughtful about the kinds of things that we knew our customer was going through. And because our, our, again, our mission is to make joy easy, there isn't always a commercial component to it. We knew that even if there were some elements that weren't linked to the sale of a something, right, that it was still going to benefit us in the long run. And our goal is to not, of course, it is to continue to sell things, but it's also to be perceived and to own the position as the party or the celebration expert. And everything is a celebration. Even summer camps can be a celebration of fun and summer. And it's probably a celebration for mom and dad to be able to know that their kids well, well taken care of and they can focus on something else. So anyway, we adopted and we leaned in. And a lot of those elements that we leaned into, and I'll use the graduation example, is that, you know, we the balloons, we took my Jeep apart and we decorated it with 2020 balloons and we had personalized signs everywhere and just all kinds of stuff. And it was a hit, a huge hit. I mean, everybody was doing it. This wasn't just us, but everybody was doing it. And now what we're seeing is that for graduations this year, there's still hope that they'll be able to be quote unquote traditional the way that they had always been. But we are also seeing that even if they can be, and I, God willing, they will, but even if they can be traditional, there are elements that came from the pandemic celebration methods that they want to continue and carry over. They still want to do the parade. Like that was fun. They still want to be able to do that and drive through the neighborhoods and have people standing on the road waving and honking like a traditional parade and then go up to the school and have the pomp and circumstance in the gym or wherever they're going to have it. You know, those. So, you know, in every pandemic, there are silver linings. And I think our ability to reimagine how to celebrate birthday parties, the same thing we created virtual birthday party kits, that kind of thing. All of that, while we'll want to get together in person and do it, there's always going to be, in my opinion, a place for some of this virtual element because we still all don't live next to one another. And we have always had to, you know, just by practicality, sometimes grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle or a friend who we moved away from couldn't come to our party because they're just not there and it's not practical to fly everywhere for every event. And so now we know how to do a Zoom party. And so we've just sort of expanded the celebration platform. And I think that even post-pandemic, you know, these things will continue. But it wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have, I think, leaned in again to the appropriate places where we wanted to say yes to versus some of the things that we just said no, at least no for now, right? No yeah. for now. I mean, it seems like it's pretty dramatic cultural shift that you guys have embarked on because, you know, as a manufacturer, you know, your tendencies can lean more business to business, you know, to your point of selling to grocery stores and that the, you know, the consumer and the retail stores are, you know, almost kind of like an afterthought is like, we make all these things, we got to put them somewhere. Yeah. We'll make them available for the consumers, but you know, our margins are so big because we're a manufacturer that you're not going to necessarily see the challenge with consumers in the P&L that you would see if you were just a pure retailer, right? And if you were having to like pay and buy it from a manufacturer, you probably would have seen these problems. The company can kind of skate along for a while because you're a manufacturer and you're still getting a good margin. So it is, do you see it as a pretty big cultural transformation from being more B2B and now you know, you've said that there are B2B plans, but like, is Party City now, you know, is it really the goal to be a consumer brand and really kind of that's your consumer first and then the kind of B2B is kind of like your second and third priorities? Yes. So, I mean, to your point, one of the benefits is that the family margin benefit of producing is certainly a positive, but remember for COVID, plants were shut down. You couldn't have people in wholesale, people who we were wholesaling to, they weren't buying because their stores were, it wasn't that that part of the business was actually thriving. I think the whole world was struggling. But as we- Pre-COVID, I meant, like when you guys first arrived. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. No doubt. But, you know, in terms of a culture shift, I think the biggest, so one, the customer, we look at customers, anybody. So we look at certainly the retail customer first, but then even the wholesale customer and the B2B customer, we're breaking down that in 
completely in terms of their journey mapping and how they're interacting with us, how they would want to interact with us, what else we could offer. Again, even if you're a B2B or wholesale customer to think through that entire party plan and the entire party experience, rather than thinking about just selling napkins to, you know, or cups to MSG or whatever, you know, Madison Square Garden. So the culture shift, I think the B2B business is a new thing. You know, we just started it really at the end of last year to get into it. And it's really an untapped opportunity. And it's very exciting because it's a true cross between wholesale and retail. You know, we've had companies that we've been, you know, working with like Auto Nation, who, you know, I always said, you haven't had so many years in auto. Have you ever driven by a dealership that doesn't fly balloons? I mean, where are they getting those damn balloons? Like we should be selling them those balloons. So, but they're always inflated and they're in a garland or they're in a column or in there's some sort of design. And we do that as well. So if we can use our party planning experts and we're now a party planning team, that's part of this party platform is we've created a party planning team who help customers, you know, without actually having to pay for a party plan or the way that you think about it, like wedding planners and things where you have to have a lot of money to do that. No, we offer this as a service. Very simple. And, you know, you can help people envision it, but we can help businesses too. Oh, okay. You guys want to do balloons at all of your locations and you do special events a few times a year and you fly banners. Well, we make personalized banners, you know, so we can offer the wholesale pricing for that at scale, but I can add in sort of that kind of retail party planning component to fulfill to actually make those garlands and make those columns and to deliver them and put them up and to, you know, to service it that way. And that's a totally new business model for us again, and one we're just starting to get into, but one that we're getting a ton of positive reception for. And especially actually in COVID, because a lot of the places that take like the Las Vegas Raiders, I mean, or some of the movie chains. So we've had reach out to us. Well, they aren't filling those facilities anymore in the traditional way that they were pre-COVID. But yet they're trying to make a business work as well and utilize those facilities. And a lot of them are, you know, different, you know, intimate level events. And so that requires some event planning and some, you know, event material. So we jump in and we help with that, with the party planning. So it's been really a fun and surprising. And it's always for, you know, look, a transformation is like, like the reason I get out of bed every day. I love it. And it's just so fun when it just starts to click and work. And it's fun because we are, you know, I have a mentality of a kind of a fail fast forward, not that we ever plan to fail, but the idea of a fail fast forward is like, let's think it through, but let's not overthink it. Let's just go out and try it and learn and constantly optimize. And that's what's fun is when you go out and you see like, oh my God, this worked great. Now I'm going to tell you that our B2B business is like kicking off and it's great. We're super excited about the potential. Does it mean it's perfect? No, like super clunky, like, oh, just like the, the infrastructure components of, okay, how are we going to forecast this so that our supply chain can provide so that, you know, we can make sure that there's a fast food sort of QSR retailer that sells a specialty kind of food and they want a balloon in the shape of that food. So this is all I will say. And so it's like, well, we've got to be able to customize a balloon, like, and which we can, but like, how do I get ahead of that? Because there's lead time. So there's all these things that you have to like think about and how do you create the right financial stream so it's not so manual and clunky because we're making everything happen. It's just not as smooth as it would be if you had said it all. So this is what is so fun, but it's what is fun is that when you see there's just this untapped market opportunity and that's what we're finding, which is super exciting. And it is a huge sea change. It's a cultural shift of epic proportions, but people were ready for it. I mean, you know, not everybody loves change, let's be honest, but I think everybody saw the potential that we could be more than we were and they're excited and people love success and not that we've been, look, we were struggling and while we have done better than expectations had us doing over the pandemic. And I hope that that will continue, you know, people want to see success, right? That's, they want to work for a company that has success. And even if they're little wins, that's sometimes just enough to convince. And that's what we're working for. It's so exciting. And it's such a great story. And I mean, gosh, there's just, there's just so many components to it and so many areas to explore, you know, and especially with you now serving in kind of the dual role of chief experience and chief marketing officer, which, you know, you adopted the CMO position as I think as COVID hit. 
how are those roles distinct? I mean, if you had to draw like a Venn diagram for those two roles, like would there be like this overlapping or are they completely separate? If I, this is just by the book of Julie. So this is not in sort of like any, this isn't gospel by any means. So this is just me. If I were to draw it today, I see them as concentric circles in that the experience officer is the big wide circle and marketing is a subset of it. <laughs> I like and it. I, yeah, way, that makes within, total sense. With inside that is the PR and internal communications. And I see experience as sort of the enchilada. And I have shared with others before that I see, you know, I've been in the game a long time now. And, you know, back in the day before like digital was big, when it was just sort of a digital was sort of like choosing radio. It was like a mix. It was part of your mix, right? It was your mix. Like I got this much digital. I got this much radio. I got this much TV. Well, like now I'm a hundred percent digital. Like it is nothing but digital. And so, you know, but people were like, well, no, you need a digital person. You need a social person. And so then you, and advertising and then PR. And there was always the question of, should they be separate? Are they the same? And my view back in the day was always that marketing was sort of the big M and all of these parts were levers of the big M marketing. Today, I actually think experience is the big E and marketing is a component of it because really our job, this is again, according to me, our job is to drive the customer experience and the employee experience because without a successful employee experience, there's almost no chance you're going to have a great customer experience. And so the experience and the understanding, the customer journey, the employee journey, all the way, again, regardless of the kind of customer, without understanding that, it is going to be very hard for you to be successful with digital, with media, with advertising, with your PR, with any of it. And so the marketing component that I then took on, I started with the, I mean, look, we yes, we were out there doing marketing, but I started with using the experience mapping that we'd done to then inform the choices and the plans that we were making from a marketing perspective. The other thing that I took on when I took on the marketing mantle as well was we pulled in the digital and I started to run the e-com operations as well. And so that was brought in too. And so the mapping of that was the first place to start. And that's where I kind of share with you the highlighting of we keep trying to jam in things to our site today that are are what we need, our services or, you know, creating the full party experience, but it wasn't the site wasn't built for that. So we're we're working on changing that and we're going to be doing some big shifts in our e-com platform that are going to allow us to be more flexible and to provide that experience there too. But again, you could call that marketing, you could call it digital marketing, e-com marketing, whatever, but it all started with the journey mapping to be able to define where the biggest opportunities are and how to then set your strategy to be able to say, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to be dedicated to getting this right. And we're not going to let the noise of all the other great opportunities get in the way because we don't have enough time and resources to do everything well. We have to do these few things really well and then move on to those things. And that's always hard, especially as a marketer. Like we love every, like all the shiny objects are us, right? So the shiny object syndrome is one you have to be very wary of <laughs> when you're in transformation. I really do love your seat at the table though. You know, being, having experience and marketing. I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, easier to kind of pull that off because you were kind of starting from scratch with the executive team and you can kind of carve that out. I'm sure a lot of more mature organizations would have a hard time politically trying to kind of consolidate those functions, even though it seems like your concentric circles to me make complete sense. And that's almost kind of like, yeah, if you could start from scratch in a company like this, especially a company like this, like that's how you would structure it. But Unfortunately, a lot of companies can't politically get there or it would just take a really long time to get there, huh? I totally agree. And it's my, <laughs> as we get old, we all have isms and quotes. That's what is the sign of age, I think, right? Grandpa always used to say. And so mine is a, that culture eats strategy for lunch. And I think that to your point, I now choose very carefully where I go with a culture mindset first. Because to be able to do the things that you know are right for the business, you have to make sure that the culture of your leadership team is one that you can have these conversations with and you can have healthy pushes and challenges against one another, but also have people who leave their egos at the door to be able to do things. And that is all of us. You have to be able to take a back seat to what's best for the customer and for the business and for your employees. 
And I was very taken by this company because of the culture that I saw was being created really through Brad's leadership. And then just meeting the other new people that were coming on and even some of the existing people too. But this is why I think we've been able to make as many changes. I mean, I, you know, certainly I think the changes that we've done within the piece that I helped to lead and to manage has been something, but you know, we've got a guy who started off as a chief merchant. He's now the chief commercial officer and we've consolidated things under that as well in the same sort of way. And again, that's just the, you know, that makes sense. Like how are we going to truly drive this strategy of, vertically integrated in practice? And how are we going to bring that across the whole PCHI, the Party City Holdings Inc. enterprise? And so that mind shift is really important. And that culture is important to be able to do what we've done here. And certainly, especially for me with being able to have people here, I mean, a little bit of show and tell, right, is to see the value of a customer journey mapping and what that can do and how that can change things and then say, okay, we're going to go ahead and trust you to do the same thing with the web and, you know, marketing. That was probably an easier one. I've done that a lot, but you know, those are the kinds of things where, you know, it's open-mindedness enough and it's a cultural point exactly to what you were saying. I think it's hard if you come in in a rigid environment where change or doing things different is not something that is natural or comfortable to, especially to the leadership team. I think if you can get the CEO and the leadership team kind of working in tandem and driving that, I think almost anything is possible. But it is rare. And I am very blessed. And it is a very special environment that I work in. There's no doubt. So with that in mind, how do you structure your team? Do you have people that are dedicated to the marketing side and people that are dedicated to the experience side that you know kind of have their own different sets of goals and KPIs? We're pretty scrappy. You know, the org isn't huge by any means. And so part of it is a, it's a restructure, a recreation and a building. Cause there's some elements that just weren't very strong. Like our CRM department was kind of, it didn't, I mean, it was there, but it wasn't robust. There hadn't been a ton of investment. So, you know, we're trying to build that up the marketing. Yes. But the marketing, we kind of moved from being marketing. So I don't have a VP of marketing. I have a VP of brand. She's amazing because now it's more than just marketing for Party City Retail. It is truly brand. It's brand for the whole PCHI enterprise and working with our product development team and using research to, in fact, I was like right before this call, we were just doing some research on some branding for some product that we've got and just look, you know, so she's helping to drive that. And that that isn't even marketing for the retail. That's actually helping to drive what it is that we are going to produce to sell both wholesale and retail and how do customers respond to it and what do they expect from us? And, you know, so we kind of reimagine that and we're filling in a lot of the areas that I think we're missing there. I brought in obviously experience with something that had never the customer experience or an employee experience expertise is not something that, I say that tongue in cheek because the title, the role did not exist. Yes, our people are obviously thinking about customer experience, but the role, the formality of it and the formality of the processes and the science and the discipline were not existent before. So I brought in somebody who I had worked with before there to do that. We're now bringing in, so she's running that. She's helping actually run the call center. She's also helping with develop this entire party planning initiative. That's both a B2B and a B2C. And that is a huge infrastructure and a huge build. Doing the customer journey mapping and the employee journey mapping across the enterprise. That like that's a full-time job. Like you could have people, multiple people doing that all day, every day. There's a ton to learn. And then you've got the running of the web, the actual e-com component as well. And so yes, I have them separated just because you have to have people dedicated to focus on their component, but on my leadership team. So I'm on a leadership team and then there's I have a leadership team. It's so important that they work together. And so they've created their own bond. And that is part of like, so we do a lot of, I do a lot of things to try to help to drive that along. We do this thing called print. It's printing. (laughs) It's Paul Hertz is a guy I've used print as a, it's kind of like a Myers-Briggs, but in my opinion, it's much better in that it, instead of talking about your behaviors, whether you're introverted or extroverted or whatever, is that it talks about your motivations of why you do what you do. So you and I may do the exact same thing, have the exact same behavior, but what motivates you to do it versus what motivates me is different. And they've got this one to nine scale and ones, they do it because they're perfectionists. Twos do it because they need to be needed. I always give the Valentine's Day example. 
you're a one, like, you know, you give a Valentine's gift to somebody because it's perfect. There's a right and wrong and it's clearly right. If you're a two, it's here because you need to be needed. So you do it because you want to give something to somebody so that they look to you like, oh my God, thank you. I'm so, I need you. Like, it's like the reverberation of that, right? If you're a three, you're super results driven. So you give somebody something on Valentine's Day because you expect a result to happen as, you know, because of it. So it goes on and on through these things. And so I do these kinds of mapping and testings with my people because it A, creates a language and it's like any clubhouse, the secret handshake. There's this language that occurs where it's like, oh, your three is showing or you're, you suddenly have this language and you start to truly understand one another about what motivates them. You're like, why are they being like, they're just being a jerk. They're not being a jerk. They've got a need that's not being met. They need clarity and results and you're being super ambiguous. So if you know that about that person, instead of like creating this conflict, you start to have understanding and you can change how you interact with that person And you can recognize things in yourself too. Like I'm starting to like get super triggered. Why? Okay. I need to express what I need. And so anyway, this I'm way more than, but there is a psychology to trying to create a healthy working team. And if, you know, I always feel good when we talk about it, I don't ever want to get hit by a bus, but if I won a big lottery and I chose not to come back to work, you know, would the team be better off? or at least as good and not miss a beat with me gone? And I think the answer is yes, because I put these people in place who not only know what they're doing, but they are have a really great relationship with one another and that teamwork because nothing happens in a silo. It all happens at cross purposes. And so they're working together to get things done. And that is truly the key to success. So again, that culture eat strategy for lunch thing, I truly believe it. And I promise you, I do everything I can to walk that talk. I'm not perfect, but it is a priority for me. Yeah. And I think it's important for people, you know, to help them understand those things about themselves, like what motivates them. Like they might not actually realize what motivates them. And as a leader, you can help them kind of, you know, through those processes, kind of figure that out because going forward, their next boss, their next leader, you know, might not have to figure that out. They can tell them, Hey, you know what, this is what motivates me. This is what gets me like, you know, up on weekends and like, you know, so help me get these things, right? And you're going to get great results. And yeah, having that kind of self-awareness about yourself, because those things don't change, you know, we are who we are. Absolutely. You're totally right. No, for sure. But you can have more self-awareness and you can be more aware of others on a different level that helps to create more empathy and a better working environment than simply, you know, when you don't understand, you just think they're being jerks and it's like personal in most cases, it's not. We just assume that because we don't have the tools to ask the right questions or to understand each other. So So I do want to get back to, you know, a little bit more career advice because I know that you're just a treasure of that. But one other topic I did want to cover was local store marketing. How do you view that with your 900 locations? Has that been something you've been investing in like through COVID or is that kind of on your roadmap? For sure. So we have a major initiative of we're kind of that earlier conversation of the journey mapping and the stack it high and watch it fly and that not being the path to success. We also recreated our store experience with what we're calling sort of our next generation store. And we launched last year, you know, a couple dozen of them. And this year we'll be doing more. And these are stores where the sight lines are way down. They're like half as tall the center is a big round balloon counter. So it's very theatrical. So you walk in and it, it's like open and you want to spend time and it's fun. And it sort of has that feel of a party that you would want to be at versus sort of a warehousey kind of. Yeah. Costco people. for party supplies. Right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which is not necessarily always, yeah, it's a lot of stuff, but it doesn't necessarily make you want to hang out. Right. And so we launched those to great success. Actually, we, we took out thousands and thousands of SKUs. And yet people say that it feels like there's more probably because they can actually focus on and see everything versus it just looking like a kaleidoscope of stuff. So we had to, as part of our marketing efforts, we obviously had the broader stroke, but we needed to go in and help to support the launches of these stores in a very local market component. So a lot of our local marketing is very focused on these next gen store launches and our remodels that we're doing. And trying to reach into those communities and share what we're doing, 
with these stores and what the experience is and how that'll be different. And over time here, hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years, it'll all be like that because we're going to be launching, you know, hopefully we'll be able to cover the rest of the chain with the rest of the remodels. But with respect then to the rest of as we're, we're sort of doing that as one path, we've got the parallel path of creating the lift for the rest of the the store format. And, you know, when you say local marketing, it's hard to imagine. It's, it's so interesting, right? It's a, kind of going back to how we used to think about things. It was very specific to local versus mass marketing. And the beauty of digital is that it kind of is all local. It's almost more than local marketing. It's personal marketing. It's, it's even more local is like local to my actual personal address to me versus my husband or my kids. That's kind of where we're going. And that's when I talked about the investment in our CRM strategy that we've really got to ramp up and amp up is to get to that personalized messaging and marketing. And especially in a world where we're trying to make it easy to actually think through and be inspired and create your whole celebration and think through celebrations outside of the ones that you might typically think about is just like your birthday and the, you know, the grads, but thinking about casino night this weekend as a potential celebration or girls night, wine night or whatever, like those are all celebrations. And so that's kind of where it gets beyond even local marketing to personal marketing, because once you start to understand how people are interacting with you and what their preferences are, now I can actually have personal marketing messages to them that would speak to what I already know is of interest or on their mind, right? That they're shopping for one, like we're, we're actually starting to test selling alcohol in some of our stores. And so, you know, wow, I could actually test down there and do like a, a Mardi Gras, you know, package where it includes the food and the recipes and then the favors and the beads and the, you know, all the rest of it. That's the kind of, when you say local, we're trying to go even one step beyond local. Although we do use what I would call traditional local marketing, especially in those store launches and remodels. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when with the personal marketing, that's more customers that you know versus customers that you don't know, right? Yes and no. And that one of the things that we're also working with is through some of the AI technology are a few things like polls. So like for Valentine's Day, it's like what, you know, ask a, a question with a series of answers and we can do this on our site. We can be doing it through Pinterest, through Instagram, you know, where it's not even directed to you, but it's in our social platforms and have people interact. And once they interact, if they then choose to give us a piece of information, now I can ping them back, not just in an email, but potentially in a text or a response right there in the Instagram feed or the Facebook feed or, or whatever with like, Hey, so that sounds interesting to you. So let me give you $5 off for you to get that thing you said was your choice of the three options. Right. You know? And so that. it's more it doesn't have to be that they're already customers that they've already shopped with us, but can we create engagement in places that's meaningful to people where they are willing to engage and interact with us? And then can we try to turn them in yeah, to a customer? Top of funnel, right? Yeah. So on the career advice, how are you advising young marketers today, just kind of entering the field? What kind of advice would you give them if they want to, have aspirations to one day be chief experience officer or chief marketing officer. They'll have such cooler titles by then. I mean, look, I love my titles, but the, it'll be something else. You know, you know, it will. Right? For sure. Yeah. To like chief marketing, chief digital, you know, chief experience. I was chief storyteller for chief a while. AI officer. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't yeah. know. It'll be something else, but you know, and look, I, my son actually, it's funny. He's at Emerson. He's studying marketing communications. I actually have an engineering degree undergrad, so I didn't go studying marketing. <laughs> like this wasn't how it, I started out. So it's funny to me that he's there flattering, but funny at the same time. And so he's doing classes and he's interviewing. He's got his roommates interviewing me and he's interviewing for the classes that they're doing. And so I think about this often of, it's a lot of pressure when you've got these young like minds who are looking at you, like you have the answers and and kind of like motherhood, I try to tell them, like, I don't have all of your answers. All I can do is try to help you learn from the mistakes that I've made, which are that I, when I was young, created the definition of success for myself as being on the cover of a magazine with a big title, making a lot of money, right? You know, like this was like, of course, I was a product of the 80s. So I've 
like, you know, yes, I was born in 70, but I was a product of the eighties where that was sort of, you know, name and lights was sort of the goal. But as time goes on and you start to really understand what makes you happy, the definition of success is going to be very different for each of us. So I try to tell them that is to really think about what makes you happy and try not to put so much pressure on yourself that success has to equal a title someplace, you know, a job title someplace. Success really should be feeling fulfilled and excited and driven every day to get up and do something because you love it. And, you know, for me, it's like the result. I love the idea of a transformation because it's like, I love digging in. Some people hate that because it's so uncertain and so unknown. That's not their definition of success. And it shouldn't be like, we should all have a different definition. So I always sort of start with that with them. And then the second is what I've already told you, which is that culture strategy for lunch. Just you could be dangled what looks like the best job on paper, like the best, like the most ultimate, whatever that means for you, you could read and be like, oh my God, this is so perfect. It's for me. Before you jump into that sight unseen, dig into what that culture is. And what I mean by that is you have to go beyond just the surface interviews that you'll do that might qualify you or get you that job because interviews are such a, there's such an artificial experience because everybody's on their best behavior in interview as the interviewee, as the interviewer, we're all on our best behavior as like, you know, that's the, that's the best we're going to be with one another is during the interview phase, right? We're trying to show off how great it is to work here. You're trying to show off how great you would be for us to work. Like those are the, and so you have to go deeper and really use that network and really look behind and try to dig in on like, well, what is that culture really like? And I don't mean like crazy things like, oh my God, the number of people sued them or like, I don't mean that because that's, I mean things like, well, how do they, to your point, like how much have they changed? Like, have they ever looked at, you've got to be able to figure out what about that culture is sort of meshes with what you see as important in life. Like I want people who are totally open-minded and willing to experiment with new things. Some cultures, not that, but you, it's very hard to find that unless you do that digging. So success definition, culture, those are my two big pieces of advice for anybody. And I, it's true for whether you're marketing or an engineer or anything else. And then for marketing, you know, specifically, I like to tell, especially the younger audience to kind of have a sponge mindset. And what I mean by that is that, you know, unless you're I don't think anybody can be 100% certain of what it is that they know they're going to love to do when you haven't had the opportunity to do other things. And so go in with a sponge mentality. And because some you might have had your heart set on, I want to run social media, but somebody's like, well, I need you to do search or I need you to do production or like whatever it might be in the marketing world is t- I just stress sometimes that's a gift lean in because you're going to learn so much, even if it's, that's not the thing you're going to end up doing, that will give you such a foundational understanding of how the ecosystem works. You'll be able to lean on that as you end up going to do the things that you want to do, whether it's specialized or general, like it's a super important part. So anyway, those are probably my three foundational pieces of advice. Nice. Uh, And I would echo on the culture thing. I mean, I started my company my main motivation was because I wanted to start a culture. At, an, at a company that I wanted to work at. That was really my primary motivation. And my main way that I interviewed people, you know, kind of the first thing was like, is it a cultural fit? You know, and if it's not, then nothing else actually matters after that. And what I didn't find that I would definitely encourage people to do is, you know, you kind of have to have an understanding, again, the self-awareness of the type of culture that you want to be a part of at a company. And in the interview process, you need to ask them, like, what's the culture like, right? And tell them the kind of culture of a company that you want to join. If you say, this is the culture that I want, and they're like, well, that's not the culture we have, then, you know, you're wasting your time. Like, go interview with another company because it should be a deal killer on both sides if there isn't a cultural fit. But what I haven't seen very much in the interview process is candidates inquiring with me about the culture and making sure that and kind of signaling to me that that's one of their highest priorities is that because that's how they're going to flourish if they're in like a very compatible culture, right? So I couldn't echo that strongly enough. I, I totally agree. And it makes a difference. Like, are you a punitive culture? I mean, and there's some words and they just sound negative on the face of them, but you've got to somehow try to dig through 
like tolerances for certain kinds of things to understand what is the culture and is that something you feel like you can thrive in or not? The challenging thing about culture is it really is hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. You know, it, what it is, is a, it's a collection of decisions that the company makes on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that's really what kind of defines your culture. It's not, you know, whether or not you have a ping pong table, you know, in the break room, or if you have unlimited vacation time, that's not culture. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> well, Julie Rame, this has been amazing. Your background is phenomenal. Your story with Party City is fantastic. And I see that it's really just in kind of like the first right now. And so I hope to stay in touch with you and have you back because, you know, we could continue doing this for hours. So I would really love to have you back on the show, maybe after like the second or third inning. That'd be great. And hopefully we won't go into too many extra innings and we'll get there, but I will be happy to meet you at the seventh inning stretch or somewhere earlier. That'd be good. (laughs) Sounds great. Good luck with everything. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Mm-hmm.